Welcome to Career in Ruins, the only podcast where the listeners genuinely find it more interesting the longer we go on for. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not, but archaeology fan. <laughs> oh, it's good to be back, dude. How are you doing? All right? I'm okay. I must admit, I'm a bit knackered. It's the end of our induction week, so I've, I've spent the week either wrestling with technology, learning new things, or encouraging slightly more senior staff members to learn how to do a Zoom. So it's been a been a long and interesting week. How about you? How are you right. doing? It's about time you did some work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all right. I'm back from a couple of weeks um, staycation up in Scotland, and I've got my last two weeks um, working at the New Forest National Park Authority after eight years um before going on to take up a post with forestry england so um i'm sort of cruising towards the finish line at the moment that's exciting it's been a couple of months since we've had a podcast isn't it so is this the first time we can officially talk about your new job yeah i guess so so yeah i'm the lead historic environment advisor for forestry england um as well as supporting forest services so a big mixture of um managing uh, the nation's estate so uh, largest landholder in england which is was hugely exciting a great great sort of um, portfolio of monuments and archaeological sites um as well as working towards these woodland creation grants that the government are pushing at the moment so does this mean all of your social media now is going to be full of tree graffiti (laughs) (laughs) yeah possibly possibly. we had that i mean i got a bit of i got i got on the daily mail i got i got bombarded by daily mail comments i don't think i've ever been so happy to read the daily mail in my (laughs) life it was it was staggering Um, do you remember any of the top comments I wish I'd made some notes now and, and had I'd like to hope a lot of them are just my friends trolling me <laughs> but um, I, that's just my naivety perhaps going through about the Daily Mail readership but I could be wrong I, I must admit you've, you've hit a goal before me there I'm very jealous I'd love to be to be victim of the Daily Mail trolls <laughs> <laughs> but um but yeah it's, it's been not not too bad month not least because i got engaged as well which is, is many congratulations i was i was Thank very you. very pleased to be a part of the whole process which was quite a bizarre bizarre role to play well but... <laughs> our listeners will know how much we love orienteering so it's one big orienteering treasure hunt which finished off with uh, some great help with you around Corfe castle and drones and bicycles and all the other stuff but yeah been a, it's been a good couple of months but i'm i'm, I'm looking forward to getting Getting stuck into a bit of podcasting. So be- before we get podcasting, Lawrence, can I ask, have you uh, have you set a date yet? Uh, COVID has... <laughs> 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 no date, no date at present. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's tricky. The government have just changed the rules to 15 people to a wedding, so... Uh, I, I wouldn't mind a few more than that. So we can we can okay, postpone we'll for a little while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and how have you what about your summer? What have you been up to? Oh, it's been a really, really busy, busy summer this year. Um, I think uh, I, in the probably in the last podcast when we chatted, we were I was in the midst of a tsunami of COVID admin, um, which continued for most of August. And then towards the end of August, um, I got very, very excited because we started to plan our field season in Greece, um, which uh, was a bit of a surprise that the world opened up to allow us to start planning it, only to then at the last minute have to pull the plug again. So it was a, it was a summer of planning and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and excitement and dreams and then shattered illusions. But actually, um, I must admit, the last few weeks, it's got very, very exciting as we move towards the start of term. Uh, for starters, I've very much missed it. And I've missed um, 
being around my colleagues, even virtually, um, and the the prospect of teaching again is quite exciting. Oh, that's good. I mean, it, it was a shame Greece was cancelled, but I, it did mean I get to, I got to go up to Scotland for a week or two, so that wasn't too bad. <laughs> but I miss our Greek friends, and they're obviously going through a bit of, a few issues at the moment with flooding. They are, yeah. the The whole region of Thessaly was was hit by a very um, large scale um, natural disaster, really, over the last few weeks, um, and they are still struggling massively. Um, some very dear friends of ours are in in um well quite dangerous conditions at the moment um not least uh the the heritage resources have struggled but um the agriculture industry there has has been completely demolished by this many livelihoods and possessions and homes so it's a, it's a really scary time there um so on one hand i'm i'm for the sake of health and safety it's probably good we didn't go but i'm, I'm sad not to be there with our friends and colleagues who are, who are going through this at the moment yeah yeah, our thoughts go out to them and we, we look forward to catching up with them soon. The the other obvious unforeseen circumstances, I managed to fracture my wrist by staying in the UK and doing more, more mountain biking like a complete <laughs> moron. Oh, you're just so gnarly, dude. I mean, <laughs> I'm, all, I'm extreme, man. It definitely wasn't a slow speed incident falling off sideways. Coming back from the corner shop with the cider in a plastic bag, is it? <laughs> you know the way I roll. You know me too well. <laughs> um, but the podcast's back. Um, we've got a great participant that we're going to introduce in a second who's actually going to be with us the whole time for today's chat it's not it's not perhaps our traditional podcast where we record beforehand and then reflect on it we're going to do it all live together over zoom um we've got a few other interesting um people lined up going forth so best people check out our social medias do you think yeah i think keep a close eye on our social media and i must admit i'm really excited about this third season of the podcast because one of those positive unforeseen circumstances of, of the pandemic is moving to this online recording which means we can sit down for a bit longer with our interviewees and incorporate them in the podcast in a little bit more depth and when we've had to travel around the country and sort of sporadically interview people for 10, 10 to 15 minutes each time yeah by chance that's a really good point and I think today's interview is the perfect example of that because I mean we are very much so as you say we, we've we've taken opportunities of meeting interesting people or leading professionals that we might bump into but as we're in this pandemic period and we, we can't go out and meet people. We thought, let, let's go a bit further afield. Let, let's reach out further. Let, let, let's actually go across the pond and uh, and see who we can meet meet across in America. So I'm delighted to introduce as our first um, participant on the podcast for, for this year or this, this season, um, Christina Douglas. So Christina, welcome to Career in Ruins. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. Um, so y- you are a professor of anthropology in the department a professor at the Department of Anthropology for Penn State College of Liberal Arts. You've got a particularly longer uh, title than that, haven't you? Did, did you fancy giving us the whole spread? I do. Sure, I can. It, it is a long title. Um, so I'm the Sherwin Early Career Professor in the Rock Ethics Institute and Assistant Professor of Anthropology and African Studies in the Department of Anthropology and the Institutes for Energy and the Environment at Penn State. Wow. Flawlessly delivered in one take. I feel like we should applause. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very glad we already agreed that you were going give, to give that bit, because I definitely would have stumbled at least three times. I'm glad I didn't trip up over it. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for joining us today. I, I, it's, it's seven o'clock in the evening here. What time is it with you? It is 2 p.m. here in the oh, afternoon. So you've still got the day ahead of you. That's not too bad. <laughs> we're, we're... And it's a beautiful day. <laughs> 
<laughs> we'll try not to take up too much of your time. Um, I should say, so we, we met actually during um, lockdown, coincidentally, and I, I, I'd argue we, we may not have met because um, it, we've, we've both been fortunate enough to receive Microsoft's AI for Earth grant, um, which is looking at deep learning and artificial intelligence to look at data sets and improve landscapes, protected landscapes, things like that. And they would normally do a conference, I guess, where everyone would come together and share ideas. But instead, they did this online this year. And there was a 30 second, almost elevated pitch of all the different projects. And our two projects were the only two archaeological ones or anthropologically associated ones. I think that's right in saying that, isn't it? Yeah, it was amazing and so serendipitous that we we caught each other's talks in the whirlwind of 30-second um, elevator pitches from, I can't remember, but it was a large number of symposium attendees. Um, and so it was exciting to hear about your work because I, I immediately saw many shared interests. That's right. So I should say, well, this is a grant I received with Ashley Green, who's at Bournemouth University, just moving on to Gothenburg. Um, but um, yeah, you, you, they're very similar to the projects in that I was lo- we're looking at the New Forest National Park, where I'm working at the moment. And you're, you're actually looking at sites in Madagascar, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And so in our case, I'm collaborating with one of my PhD candidates, Dylan Davis, on a project to look at landscape scale human environment dynamics in southwest Madagascar using satellite-based remote sensing data and AI uh, techniques. That's incredible. Uh, I I must confess I've been a bit selfish with this appointment this this talk today because it's just fascinating it's right in my wheelhouse and I'm really excited <laughs> to hear more from you today so thank you again for joining us um, before we go too far into the podcast we will do a normal the normal questions and things like that but what Derek and I like to do before we start is just pick up on a few things that have caught our attention um in the week or in the, the weeks running up to our chat um what I might do is just ping it out to Derek to start off with to get the ball rolling. But what's caught your attention, Derek? It's not so much of an attention grabber this time, but just sort of an observation, I guess. And it's picks up a bit on something we were talking about earlier in the podcast, that um, while we're in this world of changes at the moment, um, or everything's different, there's a whole new normal, everyone's kind of muddling their way through and trying to find a way to to, to cope with, with this sort of ongoing uncertainty, there are some positives. And I I think um, I've been focusing on those positives a bit the last few weeks. And I think this podcast today is is one of those positives that you you guys may never have met if it wasn't for adjustments made due to to COVID. So in a way, some of the the, the lack of human connection or the the, the social distancing we, we have to observe at the moment has led to a maybe a wider net of digital connectivity and the ability of people to to kind of get in touch and communicate in new and interesting ways and seeing that this week percolating into into my my day job into the into the normal day-to-day life of teaching is is really exciting and i must admit i I was the first to to look at this semester with with gut wrenching horror when I realised I couldn't be in a lecture theatre anymore. I love the feeling of being in a room with people and talking about topics I love and seeing the faces that are alive with excitement and those that fall asleep and uh, just the whole spectrum in between. But that that whole that whole change filled me with utter dread to begin with. I must be honest, but actually doing it and trying new techniques, new approaches, new tools to engaging with students and delivering material is is really exciting. And I'm, I've only really scratched the surface so far with a few um, Mentimeter surveys, playing around in Zoom. But just, just having 
having that ability to connect a bit wider. So we did some lectures this week where normally I would have just sat there on my own with a cohort, but because because we could connect other people, I drew in other members of staff, other team members, and we could have a bit of a dialogue and a, a bit of a conversation. And it just made for a different learning environment. And I'm quite excited about finding out more about that and trying new things in that area. That That's fair enough. Christi- Christina, you, you, I presume you're in a similar boat with your lecturing. Well, this semester, I'm actually not teaching. I did have the experience in our spring semester of teaching three classes in the online format and having to, as all of us did, switch very suddenly into that online um, platform. And that was a real challenge in many ways. Um, But I agree with Derek that there are all kinds of opportunities that have opened up because of our need now to rely on these technologies to stay connected. Um, And I've experienced it a lot in terms of capoeira, which is an Afro-Brazilian martial art that I practice and is not only part of my personal life, it's also very much a part of my teaching and sort of advising and mentoring um, presence on Penn State's campus because we have a a Penn State capoeira club. So we've done a lot of uh, creative thinking about how we can continue to share the art form and culture and history and music of Capoeira for Penn State students and faculty and staff, and basing it on a model that um, my mestre and many of his um, students have been developing, um, you know, to, to keep keep training and, and stay connected. And so in the last six months, despite lockdown, I've been able to stay connected and train Capoeira probably more than I ever have in my life. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a combination of incredible challenges. Um, but then in some of these cracks, there have been ways to open up new opportunities. That's awesome. That's great. And um, th- that all sounds really positive from both of you. I, if I can be a bit cheeky, obviously ar- archaeology is quite a practical subject I think a lot of people would would accept that so whether you're in the field Derek already mentioned that Greece hasn't been able to go ahead and um, perhaps trips abroad might be might certainly be a lot trickier but even getting out into the field and doing survey work or local excavations could potentially be quite difficult going forward or do you guys disagree with that? To a point. Um, it's, a, it's a tough question and I'm glad you threw that curveball like us. Thank you, Lawrence. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's, it's been one of the hardest things and I must admit when I, when I wake up at night in a cold sweat panicking about work, it tends to be around how we're going to get the practical stuff done. But... Again, we've we've managed to open up some innovations. So whereas ordinarily we would do a large field school every summer, we're going to be spreading field work over a whole semester with smaller social bubble type excavations. So our, our actual archaeological process and the projects we're going to be able to do will be different because of it. But I think that could offer some real value because the students, rather than being presented with a big site that's been deturfed by a digger, will have to do the whole process themselves from start to finish because they'll be on much smaller scale excavations so i think um on my side at least i don't know about christina but um we're finding we're definitely finding ways around the covid restrictions to innovate within the world of archaeological practice but how about you christina how how about field work on your side well it's interesting i just wrote a an essay about this very issue in a a special forum of the African Archaeological Review about intersections of COVID-19 and African archaeology. And one of the points that I wanted to make is that for our team, based both in the United States and in Madagascar, we've actually really relied upon a community foundation that we've built over the last 10 years of collaboration 
to keep working despite the many disruptions of COVID-19. And so, you know, our project is very much community-based um, and, you know, all members of our team, both in Madagascar and in the U.S., kind of have an, an equal say in terms of what the research questions are going to be, what the methodologies are going to be, et cetera. And we've been working on this for a long time. And as a team, we've published a couple of different things on on the subject of, you know, our kind of collaborative methodology. But in terms of COVID-19, what has happened is that because we've built that platform uh, in sort of this community uh, foundation, we have been able to work creatively um, in pockets um, for example, with local collaborators, local team members who are in areas that are not yet impacted by the spread of COVID-19 directly with, with transmission within their community, who have been able to continue to do some field work and data collection in close consultation with you know, local officials and elders and leaders in their communities. Um, and so we've, we've actually been able to be pretty creative, too, in redirecting and reallocating some of our funding, which a large chunk um, goes often toward, you know, getting our travel for the U.S. team uh, to get out to Madagascar. And so in the absence of uh, us being able to travel, we've been able to reallocate some of those funds for uh, members of our Madagascar team um, to continue to work um, on the project. So it's not to say that it's been, you know, entirely a positive situation. I mean, thank goodness, um, in the case of Velundriak communities, it seems thus far that the spread of COVID-19 has been relatively slow. And so the community remains, I think, um, isolated. That may change in the future. But for now, we've been able to be dynamic and to keep doing some work. And and just to, the idea is just to be, you know, working as a, a team, uh, a collaboration in which everybody can kind of contribute to decision making so that we're more dynamic and we can really adjust to local conditions, however they may change. That's fantastic and and pretty inspirational because I, I think traditional larger projects at least um, have a at least an image of being quite colonial in their approaches to research questions and and local participation. It's really nice to see a positive outcome of a really positive approach to research and and collaborative work as well. So that's really nice to hear that. Thanks, Lawrence. I mean, I, I think it really ties into a lot of what's being brought into the public sort of forum for debate and discussion and public reckoning. Um, you know, in the United States, we've had, as you're probably aware, a public reckoning with systemic racism um, and the legacies of settler colonialism. And so there's a lot happening, you know, both in terms of uh, community organizing and activism in the streets, uh, but also conversations within the academic sphere about, specifically in anthropology, the kind of colonialist and racist roots of the discipline and and really, in fact, um, the discipline's infrastructure even today. Um, so in some ways, you know, this moment is highlighting things that we knew about, but in a way that's really pushing them into the public sphere of debate and discussion. And so it's been um, inc incredibly challenging, but also in some ways motivating to talk and to think very critically about how we've been doing work in Madagascar, um, you know, to reflect on that as a team, but then also see the ways in which that intersects with these these broader debates about, you know, equity and inclusion in archaeology. It's 
really powerful to see that in action, really. We talk both in archaeology and anthropology an awful lot at the moment about decolonizing curriculum and and um, refocusing our message and reevaluating our own past but actually seeing that decolonization process within the methodology itself is incredibly powerful and to see the positive outcomes it has under these circumstances should be a big enough advert in itself um, for, for doing it yeah well, it's very encouraging isn't it it's very encouraging Oh, that's, that's great. On that positive note, Christina, outside of this discussion we've just had, hopefully we haven't already recovered it, but is there anything that's caught your attention in the last week or so that you wanted to have a chat about? Well, in some ways, in a similar vein, um, there have been there has been a proliferation of webinars and online panels and um, invited lectures that are available and recorded online, and which is overwhelming in many ways, um, but also has provided some opportunities to listen to some incredible work that's happening around the country and um, and, and the world. Uh, last night, actually, I, I attended one of these online talks about work that's being done in restorative justice archaeology, which is a concept that I had not really heard of, of before, even though I think that a lot of work that we are trying to do in Madagascar um, aspires to the um, sort of uh, mission of restorative justice archaeology. But this was a talk by a colleague, um, Professor Alicia Odewale at the University of Tulsa, um, and it's co-led uh, by Alicia and um, Professor Parker van Falkenberg at Brown University. And it's just an amazing project um, using archaeological methods and approaches to um, investigate and bring to light, but then also preserve and make accessible the um, history and and physical you know remains of the Tulsa race massacre that happened um, in the 1920s. An incredibly you know violent, um, traumatic uh, part of our history in the United States, and. Um, what what they're doing essentially is is applying archaeological methods, you know, survey, for example, and mapping and artifact analysis to identify and bring to light and recover pieces of this um, this district within the city of Tulsa, um, Greenwood District, that basically was, you know, essentially destroyed and burned to the ground in the race massacre in which white citizens of Tulsa attacked and murdered. Um, black citizens of the city. And um, the city went again through this other big transformation in the 1960s with urban renewal. In, and during that time, you know, whatever had remained of Greenwood District, again, suffered a lot of um, sort of displacement and, and destruction. And so Alicia and Parker, in collaboration, very close collaboration with the Tulsa community, are looking at historical records, historical maps, and other archival materials, trying to bring all of those materials together because many of those materials are in, you know, somewhat inaccessible special collections at institutions all over the country, like Yale and Harvard and um, and the Smithsonian to a certain degree. So they're trying to make those things more accessible to the community and to create a map of what happened. Um, you know, during the race massacre, but also to create what they were calling, referring to as sites of memory. So places both physical, but also in the digital world, um, where people, members of the community can go and learn about what happened um, and can, 
you know, basically celebrate and preserve Black culture and traditions. It was just an incredibly powerful talk to attend and to learn about the work that they're doing that has such a tremendous impact. And just to see in action archaeology being made so relevant to living communities. It was just fa- it, just fantastic work. It's really, really interesting. And the the thing, it, it's, it's archaeology for good, and it's so nice to see that. But also, I love the aspect of spatializing memory in, in a sense. It's something, something both Lawrence and I have looked at a bit in the past in, in our work in Greece. We were, we were looking into um, population displacements and movements during the, the, um, the Greek-Turkish population exchange, but specifically looking at the memories of things lost and people's losts and friends losts and trying to spatialize that using GIS and mapping and databases and seeing those those elements, those tools in archaeology that I could spend hours nerding out about being used for, for positive good things is is really nice to hear about. Yeah, it's it's really amazing. These landscapes of memory, I think, you know, they're it's just so important that we we can use these amazing tools in archaeology to make these visible and tangible. Interestingly, is this is this a publicly funded project or a, a bespoke project undertaken by the researchers themselves? Quite interesting because it is such a positive concept and deliverable and process. But correct me if I'm wrong, but perhaps not a, a regularly occurring thing. And I, I wonder how more things like this can be done. Well, that's a great question. I mean, in the case of of that particular project, I think there's a lot of support and funding from a variety of organizations, both at the level of the community um, and and you know, from Tulsa itself, as well as more typical kind of academic funding sources. But as far as how can this become more prevalent, I think a lot of that is just starting with archaeologists themselves thinking very critically about the work that we do and the work that we can do. Um, you know, next next week I'm I'm giving a talk um, for the Association for Environmental Archaeology um, about sustainability in the past. And I think that, you know, not to give things away, but to see sustainability in the past and to, you know, draw those lessons for the future, we really have to be very critical of, of how we do archaeological work, critical of the ways in which maybe we perpetuate um, erasure of landscapes or um, people, culture, traditions, and privileging one narrative over another Um but also just to think creatively. I mean, looking to examples like this one um, that I've just described and thinking of how to use those specific methods and that particular combination um, to set up similar kinds of projects elsewhere. Um, it's really nice to see people blazing a trail like that because you can use that as a very concrete example of how you could apply these very same principles. That's brilliant. You're absolutely right there, I think. Um, no, that's that's. That's a brilliant thing to have brought to the table. So uh, I'm definitely going to be heading off. How are you going to follow that, Lawrence? Um, <laughs> I'm just gonna, <laughs> typically, it's going to be typical of Lawrence here, I think. Mine's going to go a bit childish, um, which is always, I should always go first, I've decided, because um, then the bar can only get higher. Um, but there is a genuine thing behind this, so bear with me. Um, so I, over the last few weeks, I've been playing a, uh, a new game on the computer called Four Guys. I don't know if you've uh, heard of it at all, Christina. I haven't. No, it's, it's it's a really great in-depth, thought-out computer game. I know Derek plays it as well, where effectively you're this character um, 
a jelly bean. <laughs> and, I love jelly um, beans. You have to get <laughs> from one corner of a race course to another whilst bouncing off giant inflatable fruits or avoiding swinging balls and things like that. It's a, it's a real thought-provoking f- game. It's, 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 <laughs> it's tough. It's mindless, <laughs> it's mindless joy. It's mindless it is, joy. It but... Um, and the, these little characters are quite sweet. As I say, they look like jelly beans with cute little arms and t- squishy little legs and a <laughs> cute little face. Um, but in the last week, the creators of the game released the skeletal profile of these characters. <laughs> and actually, it's the most horrendously scary creature you can ever imagine. It was utterly alarming. That's hidden absolutely underneath of this, um, <laughs> this beautiful squishy shell of the, uh, the I'm characters. Really, I'm really struggling to imagine <laughs> what you're describing. I'll put something on Twitter. <laughs> but so it, th- this has con- completely changed my mind's eye interpretation and understanding of this jelly bean creature going from a qu- quite a sweet and um, lovable c- character that bounces off the wall and doesn't get hurt when it <laughs> falls off the side to um, this peculiar animal that's got almost like um ostrich type legs and its cranium is so high up that there are um cords coming from its eyes a good a quarter of its body length back down to its eye sockets um and it, it's quite scary but it also made me think okay this is these guys invented the games so they know what they they get to decide what this creature looks like inside so were it to die and get buried by uh, in a waterlogged deposit and we were to find its skeleton um in a thousand years <laughs> i did time. wonder where you were going here it's, it's nice to see you getting to a point <laughs> <laughs> we'd find its skeleton and I would bet you a hundred pounds if you gave that skeleton to any archaeologists or whether they are a, a bone specialist. I mean, I dare Alice Roberts to take that skeleton and draw a jelly bean out of it. But um, and it then got me thinking about archaeological interpretation um, of the past, when when it past past living memory, past written records. Um, and there's a really good meme that goes around about the hippo and you get to see the hippo's skeletal jaw and face and then you see an alien's interpretation of the hippo and then you see a photo of the hippo and and it's completely understandable the alien one's this big scary animal that that looks uh, like it could bite your hand off and to be fair it probably could bite your hand off but the photo of the hippo is this cute little squishy bear that you, you want to give a hug to and um it just got me thinking about archaeological interpretation as a whole and and it probably goes as far back as dinosaurs as well i'm just going to throw it out there it's our first podcast back and we've already mentioned dinosaurs but um <laughs> people yeah. will write in <laughs> i don't know if you guys have had any interesting takes of interpretation I, or yeah go for it can i just lunge in here lawrence i need to before we get into anything serious and archaeological about this i need to question your psyche a little bit that um for, for hours and hours of us playing this game, presumably you had very little sympathy for these jelly beans that you were throwing around <laughs> this obstacle course. Suddenly, you know, it's got a skeleton and it somehow humanises it and you, mm. you have sympathy yeah, well, and yeah. feeling and love towards it. It's, well, it's, it's intriguing. If anything, I'm slightly repulsed by it now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, any have you got, I don't know if you guys have come across any interpretation faux pas or things things that you've seen interpretations of when it, and you just think, oh, I'm not sure. That's how it looked. Even if it comes down to a reconstruction of a roundhouse, that the particular design and stylization of it is taken from the artist's interpretation as opposed to archaeological evidence. Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, all I could think about as you were talking about jelly beans was the Motel of the Mysteries um, sort of graphic novel. Have you all read that? 
No, no. Tell us more. Uh, it's such a classic. It's this, you know, archaeologist of the future who goes into a standard house of the 20th or 21st century and is looking through the rubble and discovers all of these artifacts that he can't really place, but he makes all of these interpretations. And the one that always sticks out in my mind is he sees the uh, bathroom and the, the toilet bowl and thinks that it's some kind of ritual uh, locus. And the toilet seat, you know, he thinks is some kind of a fancy breastplate and it's it's sort of a, a cheeky shout out to the Schliemanns and and putting on the jewelry from um you know from Troy um Sophie Schliemann kind of being <laughs> yeah. dressed up by Heinrich to look <laughs> like Helen of Troy um so it's a cheeky shout was, out to that what but was the publication again sorry it's called Motel of the Mysteries and it's one that I always bring up to my um archaeology students is one that my um undergraduate advisor Jerry Rudder had us read um but yeah, it's just kind of a graphic novel, and it's all about the absurdity of a lot of archaeological interpretation and the fact that when we don't really know, you know, we assign it to ritual and some kind of um, symbolic <laughs> realm. That's um, amazing. I, I love that. And it reminds me actually of one of our, it was either our first or second podcast when we were still finding our feet, and I was doing much more research before the episodes, I must <laughs> confess. Um, and uh, I, I was in a builder bear and it, I was I was viewing the 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 experience of building teddy bears with my children um, through the lens of a paper. I, one of my favourite papers, Body Habits of the Nasirima. I don't know if you've ever come across it. No, I haven't. It's, it was written in, I think it was 57. Um, it's, it's a parody of anthropological language, um, basically describing the day-to-day -day activities of Americans through the language of detached anthropology. Um, and it's so such similar things, talking about the, the ritual box in the, in the bathroom area where uh, they would weave string to the edge of a stick and rub it around their mouths um, ritually for 10 to 15 minutes and it just it just sounds so similar so i'm gonna have to find this novel yeah um, I, that's straight on my list amazing. that's straight on my list <laughs> yeah i have to check it out because all these things are so great when you're teaching intro to archaeology courses um mm. just to kind of get give students that perspective of of what archaeological interpretation is but also to think you know even at the more advanced student level about how we form archaeological questions and how we test hypotheses and engage in that scientific process. Mm, that's awesome. I see I knew this was the right place to bring up jelly beans. <laughs> <laughs> I love jelly beans. You had me at jelly beans. We, we, could, we could talk about this forever. Uh, I'm getting very, very selfish now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that was, I think that was a great start to the, the, the season with regards to things that we've been talking about. And I, part of me just wants to talk aimlessly about random stuff, but that's not what the podcast is about. <laughs> Career in Ruins is about Isn't it? <laughs> bringing in fascinating leading professionals to tell us all about them, some of their great work that they've been doing, some of the great work that they've come across that they're really impressed by, and tell us what they're going to do with our time machine. So it's probably time for us to get into the podcast properly so christina you, you've already given us your fantastic job title and we, we we know that you're at penn state but i wonder obviously you, you've not just started there you've you've got you've had a long career you've mentioned some of your madagascar work i wonder if you could just give us and our listeners a, a, an overview of of where you started from what got you into anthropology and um how you got to 
their heady heights that you are today? Well, heady heights, I don't know about that, but I, I certainly can can share some of my my journey uh, to to where I've come to be as a professional. And it really starts for me in childhood because I grew up uh, traveling around the world and living in a place for a few years here or there, in some cases um, a little bit longer, like Madagascar. We lived there for almost 10 years when I was growing up. And it's thanks to the work that my parents did. Um, both of them were working initially as Peace Corps volunteers um, when they first started their careers. And they ended up pursuing international work in the spheres of international public health and development. And so their um, jobs took our families to places all over the African continent, including Kenya and Cameroon and Madagascar. Um, we spent some time in Ukraine. Um, so we moved around quite a bit. And, um, you know, our family is a, a patchwork of different backgrounds. Um, my siblings and I are all adopted from different places. So none of us has a, a genetic um, sort of uh, a link. Um, so we, we really are, you know, a family that that chose one another and, and came to be together. Um, and we're all really, really different. Um, and so I learned, I think, as a child, that everybody's heritage and history has incredible significance um, in very different ways. And so I think I've always been interested in people's, the stories that people can share to reflect that history. And that, you know, to me, I think storytelling and passing on knowledge through generations is what makes us human, you know, and is so critical to our evolution as a species and is so critical to our survival. And a lot of the work that I do really centers on that today. But my parents' work was in public health and, and development, so it touched on all kinds of topics, including things like community health um, and, and access to clean water. It touched on things like uh, conservation of the environment and how does conservation intersect with economic development. And I learned so much from watching my parents work, um, but also learned a lot about myself because of the opportunities that we had to travel, go camping, you know, um, all over the world, essentially, and to learn about different cultures and learn different languages and, and go to school in different languages. Um, I think the, that childhood really was sort of anthropological training in and of itself. Um, but it took me a little while to realize that uh, archaeology would be the right combination of intellectual, uh, you know, intellectual activity, um, physical activity, because I love the outdoors um, and I love to work with my hands um, and the sort of right balance of, of professional kinds of tasks. You know, I always tell my students um, and students who are interested in pursuing uh, graduate work, for example, that they have to really think of what their day to day would look like, um, their ideal day to day. You know, what do you what do you see yourself doing? And so when I think about my job and I think about time that I get to spend in the field, time that I get to spend in the lab, time that I get to spend teaching or talking and sharing, you know, knowledge with with people, um, it's it for me it really is the right balance, um, and it was ultimately this combination of a childhood steeped in multiculturalism, and uh, a family steeped in these very very different histories and heritages, 
and a love of the outdoors and of working with my hands that all sort of coalesced into archaeological science. That's brilliant. It's really, really nice to, to hear. And it's amazing, actually. Uh, one nice thing about doing this podcast is is hearing lots of different people's backstories. And something that, that often comes out is even without necessarily knowing it as a child, there are these roots to archaeology and anthropology that kind of spread out into your experiences. And even those who stumbled into the discipline without really knowing it was what they wanted to do, they can kind of look back on their past and their childhood and, and see the roots and the things that led to where they are today. And it's really interesting to hear your story. Thank you. Yeah, I think the moment that I really uh, sort of accepted that anthropology and archaeology was the specific career path in which I would I would find that that combination that that joy and perfect combination for myself was um, as a young person reading Nelson Mandela's autobiography because it's an example of the preservation of a really really important history right and and set in a context that is so multicultural and diverse but then also highlighting how important it is, to recognize that diversity and and those different stories and and preserve them and pass them on to succeeding generations that made me feel like this could be my this could be my calling my mission um, in my own particular way um, so it did at a certain point something did click uh, and I thought okay yeah this is you know archaeology is a way in which I can I can uh, bring this about that's awesome so so did you have a traditional approach to then your archaeological training um did you, did you presume you went and did an undergraduate or did you do any, do any courses before you went to college university i went to a small liberal arts college in new hampshire called dartmouth college and studied classical archaeology there um, so ironically i only took one anthropology course when i was an undergraduate and i regret that now because um, dartmouth's undergraduate um, program in anthropology is wonderful and there are so many people um, that i've come to know now who I would have loved to have studied with as an undergraduate. But I combined classical archaeology in the classics department with um, environmental studies, which was an incredibly interdisciplinary program. And I got to go on uh, study abroads to southern Africa um, and to Greece and Crete and Turkey and sort of combine all of these things and tease out that my interests really were in these human environment interactions in the past. So as an undergraduate, my final project was looking at um, depictions in um, ancient Aegean art of sheep and goats. Uh, because as a child I had goats and I, I've always loved goats. They're my, one of my favorite animals. Um, but I had noticed that, you know, goats really get the short end of the stick in a lot of um, classical uh, mythology and descriptions. You know, they're associated with debauchery and, and or weakness as opposed to sheep who are always portrayed as being these virtuous animals. And I didn't really feel that way. You know, growing up, I always felt that the goats were the smart ones. You know, the goats are the ones that you can sort of let roam free and they'll browse and they'll graze and they, they're very hardy and they'll do just fine. Um, whereas the sheep, you know, if one of them wanders off in the wrong direction and gets 
gets lost, you know, has a hard time finding, you know, its its little flock again. And and so I, I didn't have that much respect for sheep when I was growing up, um, and felt <laughs> high maintenance, and felt that it was my duty to defend goats um, uh, in some way. So I looked at ancient Aegean art and discovered that um, perhaps it's the differential sort of ecological impact that goats can have that may have led to some of these perceptions that were preserved in ancient art and, and texts um, about goats. But anyways, that, that continued to evolve um, in looking at these human environment dynamics um, in graduate school. And I had decided that I would like to work uh, on an African context. Um, so I went to Yale University and studied anthropology and initially had planned to study mound building traditions in the Sahelian region of Africa. And then um, through reading and expanding sort of my interests became very much drawn to um, the debates around island colonization and specifically Madagascar, where I, I had already um, uh, lived as a child. And so I had a very strong connection to the place and the people, um, but was just so fascinated by all of the sort of mysteries, gaps in our knowledge uh, relating to the settlement of this enormous island, the fourth largest island in the world, uh, and yet seemingly settled only in the late Holocene by people, although, um, you know, more recent research is is sort of questioning that. So that's how I came to, to study Madagascar, and um, I pursued uh, a postdoctoral uh, training program at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. Um, was very fortunate to, to win that fellowship um, and then began my uh, faculty position at Penn State. That's really interesting. Thank you so much for that. I know Lawrence has given you a bit of a heads up on the question. So the, the next one we want to know is, is there is there an aspect of your career so far that you're particularly proud of that you'd kind of draw one bit, maybe one project, one thing out and say, this is the thing that I'm, I'm most happy with? Yeah, I think it's really the collaborative approach that we've built over the last 10 years in Madagascar um, with collaborators based in Madagascar, but also um, in other parts of the world. And when I was a graduate student developing my dissertation project, um, which has you know evolved into what I do now, I, I always felt a little bit um, uncertain um, and perhaps uh, anxious about the approach that I had chosen to take, which is to um, develop these deep relationships with the communities in which I was working, because there are all of these pressures to finish your degree quickly or in you know a certain amount of time. And developing relationships and and um, trust uh, and sh sort of shared experience with people takes time, uh, and uh, so I, it makes me think of. Um, a paper that I really love uh, by an archaeologist named Scott McEckern, um, who's at Duke Kinchan University in China, the idea of slow science um, in archaeology. And it really felt that way to me. And it, it, it felt that I was pushing against the the current in, in trying to take the time to develop this community foundation. Um, but it turns out that as I've sort of matured in my professional track, I'm so proud of the fact that that is the path that we took as a team. And it's bearing fruit now in amazing ways. And I think it's it's the kind of um, collaborative 
relationship that we have that will bear fruit for for many years to come. Um, and so it was absolutely worth it, but it, it has taken me some time to build up the confidence to stick with this uh, principle and not to be um, not to not to be pushed off track by the kind of demands of um, you know modern uh, academic production. That's really powerful. And as you were talking, I was reflecting on on some of my own fieldwork projects in the past, and those those that have stuck and those that I've I've found most joy and happiness in are those where they are a, a genuine collaboration and actually genuine friendships as well beyond beyond simply going somewhere and doing some work and, and having something that's long lasting from them is, is, is I think something all archaeologists can aspire to and should be aspiring to and seeing you lead the way there is really exciting. I must admit it's going to be quite hard to top that but if you had to, if you had to pick something else that someone else is doing or another project that maybe you know someone's involved in or a piece of work that someone else is doing that you're envious of, is, is there anything that springs to mind? Yeah, actually, you know, it's it's fun being in a field in which there is so much exciting, innovative work being done to understand how people have interacted with with their world, their landscape, and how they've created and co-evolved with it. Um, I have colleagues here at Penn State in in my department, um, Rebecca and Doug Bird, who work on the human ecology of. Um, Western Australia, and they've worked in many places, but most recently in Australia. And they look at um, the uh, sort of uh, pyrodiversity of the Western desert landscape. And this is a, an ecology of fire that is managed, created and managed by people, um, local, local indigenous communities. And the project that they recently published that I just find um, absolutely sort of breathtaking in terms of the sophistication of the techniques and the close integration with community knowledge is a study um, that Rebecca led and was published in in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences earlier this year, um, in which they used aerial, very high resolution aerial photographs um, uh, that, you know, were available for a particular window of time um, covering a certain area of the Western desert. And they, they used um, all kinds of um, sort of um, uh, automated techniques to be able to analyze those photographs. And what they basically saw is that um, through the use of fire, by analyzing the patterns of fire scars and the sort of sequence of fire scars on the landscape, they saw that they documented the process of people creating a landscape in which you have this incredible um, ecological patchiness and diversity based on successional burning of patches and then regrowth at different stages um, that promotes biodiversity. Um, and to be able to see it put together in that way using this you know, amazing set of, of aerial photographs that they, you know, they happen to be able to access um, and use. It was just, just stunning um, because it, it supports, you know, the uh, essential uh, need for autonomy over land use and to allow local indigenous and descendant communities to continue to manage their territories and to care for country. Um, and I just thought it was a 
beautiful integration of sort of anthropological theory uh, of niche construction, how people co-evolve with their landscape methods, um, you know, using AI and and sort of uh, geospatial informatics, um, and you know, steeped in this long-term collaboration that they've had with Mardu communities in Western Australia. That's fascinating. I mean. Not directly relevant, but slightly relevant. So obviously I work in the New Forest National Park and um, we have controlled burning taking place here, which is something that's been going on for a long time for exactly as you just mentioned for habitat regeneration and fodder creation for the wild animal. We got wild ponies, but I don't know if you can call them wild if they'll chase you for a packet of crisps. But um, but um, and so, yeah, although perhaps not not directly comparable, there there is this is a tradition that has been done by commoners and land managers since at least 1079, wow. uh, maybe, maybe a bit later than that. That's, that's certainly when the New Forest was created by William the Conqueror. And um, that, that's really interesting. I, I, I'm actually going to have to go away and look up look up that uh, paper. Yeah. I'd, also, um, <laughs> I'd also question its, it's comparableness to, uh, certainly near us, near Derrick, um, we've got a forest called Wareham Forest, where there's a huge wildfire that was created by patterns of humans straight after lockdown who went and had barbecues in places they shouldn't have barbecues. And um, I guess in, in California as well, there's some pretty horrendous stuff going on yeah. out there. So perhaps we're uh, still creatures of uh, of of destruction but some some things are better than well others. it's yeah i mean uh, i think the the study of fire ecology is so fascinating and you're absolutely right to point to the western coast of the united states i mean m- most of my family are based in and around the portland oregon area and so the last several weeks of um, wildfires and then the high levels of toxicity in the air because of the smoke um, has just been extremely stressful but again supports this you know, really critical need to look at indigenous fire management um, and landscape management um, in which, you know, local indigenous and descendant communities have used fire for millennia to um, shape the landscape, shape biodiversity. Um, And really, if we look at many examples, Australia included, um, mitigate against the potential for megafires, Right. If you if you burn at certain intensities and frequencies, I mean, I don't I don't have to um, tell you all this. You 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 all know this, but um, you you basically create a landscape that is less prone um, to the extremely devastating impacts of a large mega fire that can burn at extremely high intensity and over a really uh, vast area. So, um, yeah, I think indigenous uh, management of territories is incredibly important. And and any examples that we can provide either using archaeological techniques or other techniques, I think are very important as we look to the future of, of climate change. Mm. Oh, that's brilliant. That's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that one. Um, oh, this is this is brilliant. This is you brought, brought so much good stuff. I'm so <laughs> glad you could come. <laughs> um, so we are now on to the um, the final um, question for the for the day and for the podcast. But um, I'm not sure if you've had a chance to listen to any past episodes. But Derek and I have a patented, patented and working time machine um, that all our participants get to have a, a free ride, a return ticket. Um, you don't have to take the ticket. There's been at least two people um, that are killjoys, but uh, that's, that's fine if you. <laughs> Want to, uh, if you want to go down that route, um, but um, no, that, no pressure. That's being, that's being particularly mean. <laughs> but um, if if you'd like to come on our time machine, um, all you need to do is tell us wh- wh- where you'd like to go and what you'd like to see. 
I would like to go to Madagascar at the time of the first human arrivals on the island. And I say that um, kind of recognizing some of the irony there because part of my work is really trying to push us away from this obsession with first arrivals on Madagascar because I think that um, in some ways it's sort of uh, pushing the debate in less productive areas. I mean, really what we should be looking at are the longer term human environment dynamics through time and not just focusing on, you know, what is the the, the absolute earliest evidence that people were on the island. Um, so in any case, I, I would like, though, to um, travel back to one of those first encounters because Madagascar had this incredibly absurd suite of large animals that went extinct sometime in the last thousand years or so, including giant elephant birds, you know, the largest birds ever to walk the earth, um, you know, weighing the largest of which weighed over a ton and and laid eggs that were essentially the, the, the volumetric equivalent of 180 chicken eggs, which is just crazy. Um, and, and I find fragments of these eggs um, in archaeological sites in southwestern Madagascar, and I'm, I'm working on several projects looking at human interactions with these birds. But there were also pygmy hippos. There were giant man-sized lemurs, um, you know, j- enormous tortoises, so many amazing sort of fantastical beasts. Um, and I would have loved uh, to have been on one of those first boats to arrive um, and to see not only these crazy animals, but also plant life that um, is not seen anywhere else on Earth. You know, Madagascar has such a high level of endemicity um, because of its sort of unique uh, biogeographic history. Um, and then to think about, you know, who's, who had the, the first um, experience of trying to go up to a, an elephant bird nest and carry away one of these massive eggs. And, you know, where I work in the Southwest, there's oftentimes this really sharp sort of limestone bedrock. And, you know, the birds may have nested on these marine terraces. And so you imagine walking up to an elephant bird nest, maybe there's a male elephant bird, you know, guarding that nest. Um, and you, you, what do you do, you know? Um, and then so let's say you manage to grab an egg, and then you're running with this awkwardly shaped, enormous, super heavy um, um, object over the sharp karst and amongst the sort of spiny shrubs. And it just, it just all seems absurd to me. So I would have loved um, to, yeah, I would love to travel back to that time and just see what that's like. And also on a more kind of serious note, just have that experience of um, encountering a new landscape. Uh, and then, you know, what is that like as a human when you're in this sort of new landscape to start to begin that process of co-evolving with it and transforming it in ways that sort of benefit you and your children and your descendants? Um, so anyways, yeah, Madagascar, um, I want to see an elephant bird. <laughs> That's fascinating. Um, one, one thing you just brought to my mind, um, not least maybe the elephant bird is the jelly bean in disguise, but um, um, the 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 excavation of sites that have extinct flora and fauna, I, I, I come from a, wherever it is I've worked, it's been pretty traditional. So whether it's Greece, Qatar, UK, whatever, the the environmental analysis of um, animal bones or post-excavation of animal bones and assessment of that or the environmental analysis is all pretty standard because it's stuff that we'd expect to find in those regions, whether it's a hazelnut or a chicken. Um, how or, or a goat. Or a goat, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I'd not even ever comprehended this idea of bringing in specialists to look at flora and fauna that haven't been around for some time. Where where do you get those specialists from? Are they <laughs> still on the island? Are these people across the world? Where do you start with, with those sorts of untangible aspects of heritage? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, you have to form collaborations with paleontologists um, and, uh, you know, archaeologists, but, um, you know, who, who are specialists in in either paleobotany or, or zooarchaeology. In the case of Madagascar, there are a few people who really are um, exceptional experts, um, one of whom is somebody I admire greatly, Lori Godfrey, who's a professor emerita at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and has spent much of her career studying the remains of these extinct taxa on Madagascar um, and building up the kind of the, the, you know, the, the knowledge that only years and years, decades of experience can give you of looking at these and creating sort of um, collections, both in your mind, but also in museums. And so, you know, in different museums around the world, there are comparative collections for many of the Malagasy fauna. Um, obviously, just like with here, I'm going to say it, dinosaurs. Um, sometimes there are <laughs> gaps uh, in terms of, of the, the sort of uh, skeletal or, or other sort of morphological representation that we have in these collections. Um, but for the Madagascar uh, fauna, at least, I think as compared to many other places in the world um, that have lost sort of large-bodied animals, we have a pretty good reference collection across, again, many different collections around the world. And one of my students, I'm going to put in a plug for her, Danny Bufa, um, is doing something really innovative, which is um, she's creating a digital collection of Madagascar fauna, which is very much needed for Madagascar because many of these collections that I'm referring to are not accessible to local scholars on Madagascar. And so if we're going to better understand human environment, human animal dynamics on the island, uh, people need to have access to these these reference collections. So she's going to different museums um, and scanning, you know, um, uh, skeletal elements for various Malagasy fauna and and creating a, a, an accessible digital repository for these things. What a fantastic project. Well done, Danny. And, and a superb answer to the time machine question, I must say. It's it's really, really nice to meet someone that I, I, I share a similar, similar inner turmoil in that um, one of one of my strands of research is looking at technology, particularly um, metal technologies. And I've always argued that it's much more interesting to look at innovation and adoption and change than it is to look at that single point of invention. But my word, I'd love to go back in time and see the first time someone took a stone and made a metal from it. Right. It's, uh, fascinating to see in a time machine, but um, much, much less interesting academically. <laughs> yeah, no, but these are these are crazy moments in human history. Um, mm. And in some ways, archaeology, you know, oftentimes can't get at the moment. Uh, it can get at maybe processes, but it's still, it's fun to think about those moments. Yeah, definitely. Christina, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us for the first podcast back. And um, anyone else that's going to be signed up for, for the coming weeks are going to be trembling their boots after following that because it, it, honestly, there's some, been some <laughs> there's brilliant stuff there. So thank you so much. Thank you. I, I can't thank you all enough, not only for inviting me to participate, but also for doing the work that you do. I think that in the era we are in politically, ecologically, in terms of health, there is no more urgent time to be communicating 
with a broad audience about um, the work that we do as archaeologists, as scientists. Um, and so having, you know, this chance to, to be a part of what you all have built um, through your the goodness of your hearts and your, you know, your sheer grit um, to, to put together a show and, and, and to seek out people to participate in the show is just, it's awesome. So thank you for doing this work. Thank oh, you, very kind of you to say. <laughs> I'm <laughs> blushing now. <laughs> yeah, me too, even though my camera's off. <laughs> it, it was only really a title. Um, we just we just made a pun about archaeology and had to do something with it. Just that and throw in some jelly beans. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. And, no, um, a wonderful pleasure. Enjoy the rest of your day and your weekend ahead. Thank you. And um, I, I, hopefully we can cross paths in, in person in the not too distant future. That would be wonderful. And I look forward to hearing more about your future work. It would be awesome. I'm going to go and check out this jelly beans game. <laughs> yeah. Full guys. Full guys. Great. Yeah, we're, we'll share our usernames. We can all play. <laughs> oh, okay. Cool. Perfect. There you go. Another way to connect. <laughs> <laughs>